welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Priya Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is Andrew Chase, who is a broker with Cushman Wakefield. He and I have known each other for years. In fact, he was the one who helped Breakthrough find our office space. So, Andrew, welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I am a tenant represent- representation specialist. Uh, I've been doing this for about six years, um, straight out of college. Uh, it was pretty daunting at first, which is why. I understand uh, pretty thoroughly the confusion that tenants can run into. And uh, as I've gone, I've kind of worked my way up. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, one of the reasons I'm really appreciative of you inviting me is you were the first person to actually put their trust in me to be your representative for your negotiation. So. Well, it worked out very, very well for us and hopefully <laughs> well for you. So tell me a little bit about commercial real estate in New York, because every nonprofit executive director I know is like the biggest headache that we deal with. And part of it is it just seems so confusing. So what are the most confusing things about commercial real estate in New York? Well, there's there's a ton of things that for someone that isn't in the environment every day uh, may find difficult. Number one's the jargon. We kind of have our own language and it makes perfect sense to us. But, a, you know, to be perfectly honest, even something as simple as a comp when I started out which is a comparative lease. You know, it's something that a uh, deal recently done in a building that you were looking at, here were, this, here were the numbers that that finally landed at. Even something like that when I first started out, I mean, I wasn't afraid to ask because, I mean, you know, you've known me quite some times I asked, figured it out in the long run. But even now, I had an intern this summer where I'm just, just speaking and, and every, you know, sentence or two, I get a question. What does that mean? What does that mean? So, I mean, one of the things that you and I had to, had to cover extensively was the difference between your rentable square footage and your usable square footage. Loss factor is an interesting thing and it's very market specific. So there are some markets around the world that have a, a legal, like this is the standard loss factor. New York is not one of those places. However, the governing body of really real estate in New York, uh, the Real Estate Board in New York has set out guidelines where a Full floor is about 27% loss factor. So you're taking your rentable square footage and taking 20% off of that. And then a partial floor has a 35% loss factor, which is obviously the same. So the loss factor is essentially the, the percentage of the common area space that you're paying for. Right. So it ends up being you know your fair share of the lobby, the elevator, the common corridors, the maintenance areas, the... Parts of the building that you don't really use, but are part of the reason that your usable space is usable in the first place. However, it's not necessarily a common loss factor across buildings. Right. There, there can be differences, and it takes time to learn those. So, for instance, I, I'm not going to say the building, but there is a building in New York City where for the partial floors, where you're not taking an entire floor, the loss factor around 50%, which is you know, very high. I mean, not necessarily <laughs> for my tenants is, is a building that I don't typically go to. Let's talk a little bit about 
deciding how much how much office space to take because obviously as a nonprofit executive director you're always thinking about the bottom line and so you don't want to get into a position where you're paying for a ton of office space that you're not going to use and on the other hand you don't want to rent something that you'll over outgrow too quickly so how do you generally advise your clients in that particular instance what typically what I do is I'll look at what your previous two years looked like if you were hiring a ton in the previous two years, then we may want to be more aggressive on your future square footage. Unless I talk to you and you say, well, yeah, we did all that hiring, but that's the reason for this requirement. We need to be this big, but we're not necessarily going to hire that much going forward. That's going to service our program for, you know, typically your five-year plan. That's going to that's be good for our next five years. That being said, you know, my job is to save tenants as much money as possible, and even more so with nonprofits because if there's one thing that nonprofits have is not they never have too much money. Um, Show me a nonprofit with too much money. <laughs> love to see one. Yeah, there's just no such thing. So there's there's another thing that you want to avoid there as well. So if, if we go too small, for instance, and then you do outgrow it very quickly, we may be in a situation where now I need to market your space for sublease. Where you call me up and say, hey, uh, the projection we did did not work out. We need to get rid of this space because I need to double again. Mm. That's not necessarily great either because now you're in the business of being a landlord, number one, unless I can go to the, the over landlord and negotiate a recapture, which is where the landlord will take the space back. But typically there's, typically there's if, unless you can stay within the portfolio, there's a buyout involved with that where you're going to have to shell out some money to get off the hook. So more likely than not, now you're, now you're a sub landlord. So you're going to have a tenant that's paying you. So there's risk there too, because now this new tenant could go out of business and then you're still stuck with two spaces. I try to avoid that as much as possible because that's just not ideal. And it ends up costing, costing any company, nonprofits especially, money that they just... Would you recommend then to be a little less conservative and take a bit more space and then maybe sublet it in the interim? It really depends. Every organization seemed that I've that I've consulted with seems to have a different trajectory. So if you know your niche and you've really figured out what you need, then we can be conservative because it's going to save you money. We can say, all right, we'll try to make this as efficient as possible without packing you in like a sardine can. Right. Uh, we'll try to be as efficient as possible. We'll try to get you, you know, some flexibility on term, but because of your you're kind of a known quantity. We might want to go a longer term because then we can negotiate more aggressive terms on the, whether it be the rent, the free rent, or the build out. Mm -hmm. Versus if you don't know what you're going to be two years from now, whether it's good or bad, then you're going to want to be a little bit more aggressive. Mm -hmm. More conservative. No, no. you're going to be want to be more aggressive. Cause if, really. So let's say, let's say you're really ramping up Yep. And this isn't obviously for a larger tenant, but if you're really ramping up and you're going from uh, donated space at another nonprofit where you're sitting within there and you're going to ramp up into tripling your numbers to 30 employees in the next two years, you might want to take that risk and get a five-year deal for a space that was going to house those 30 <laughs> employees instead of being conservative and finding yourself in the subleasing issue that we spoke about before. So it's like, you can be more conservative when you know who you are. If you're really growing, you, you kind of have to take that risk because it's what growing pains so, are. Yeah, interesting point. Where are the deals in New York City now? <laughs> it's, market is, it's incredibly tight. 
instead of full submarkets like downtown, which typically is the home to nonprofits, submarkets like that, there's there's still it's still a bit lower overall. But now, you know, if we did a deal four years ago at thirty five dollars a square foot, now you're looking at deals in those same buildings for fifty five. Mm-hmm. So you really have to find that building or that sub sub market within the overall market to find that aggressive deal or you can look to subleases but obviously there's added risk in those as well right so if you could pinpoint any sub sub areas now what would you say you know surprisingly grand central is on the cheaper side and the reason for that is the product around there is very old very much older buildings that you know in their heyday we're housing, you know, the most prestigious financial firms in the world, but now are 100 years old and aren't, aren't going to be able to, to pull those kinds of numbers anymore, which is why you're seeing a lot of redevelopment in that area now. Mm-hmm. Like one Vanderbilt's going up there and it's going to be one of the most impressive buildings ever made. And the reason that they did the Mid- Midtown East rezoning to make the air rights and everything fall into place the way they did is because that, that product is so old. What about the outer boroughs? Like... Deeper out into Brooklyn, Queens, South Bronx. So Brooklyn is definitely a place to look for a nonprofit because the the, the rent per square foot out here, and I say out here because we're out in Brooklyn right there now. We are in Brooklyn, in my um, house, actually. Yeah, uh, the the area out here, the rent is is basically where downtown was five yeah. years ago. Um, that's not to say that it's cheap because five years ago Brooklyn was even less than it is now. So it still can be expensive, and if your programming would allow it, this is definitely a place to look. Mm-hmm. And I, I keep hearing about the South Bronx. Is that a thing that's happening? The South Bronx is a really interesting market because now the first thing I'll say is I am not the, uh, <laughs> the Cushman and Wakefield chief economist. However, from my perspective, it's zoned and, and being developed for what seems to be a biotech use. So yeah, you can you can um you can go up there and find some some cheaper office space, but you're going to find yourself and I think pretty soon really competing with these uh you know, pharmaceutical and biotech companies that have a lot of money. So I see that I see that that market going pretty steeply north pretty mm-hmm. soon. Long Island City is an interesting area as well. Yeah, I mean, now that we have Amazon moving in. I, I, see, I don't know anything about uh, Amazon, unfortunately. They're a great company. <laughs> I'd love to have them as a client, but unfortunately I do not. But it is a, it's a nice area with, with good office stock. There's, there's a lot of office buildings out there that you might be able to get a good deal on just because it's, you know, it's not Manhattan. At the end of the day... Anything outside of Manhattan is probably going to be a little bit less than what Manhattan is. Okay, so the the takeaway is that there are no deals and that you have to be sort of, it's a combination of luck and scouting around to find. Yeah, in this current market, it is, it's an incredibly expensive proposition. If you are a brand new nonprofit going out into the market and looking for something, you're you're going to need to be, it's all, it's not, I don't want to say needle in a haystack, but you're going to need someone who's very capable. Mm-hmm. Someone that's capable and has your interests at heart because it'll be easy to miss, and I say it in quotation, miss that needle for a certain type of broker. Whereas, um, you know, someone that has your interests in mind is going gonna, is gonna to try to find you something that'll work. So I want to pin a pin in that and come back to the question of brokers, but just to quickly 
finish this up. What are your views on uh, communal office space, like a WeWork or something like that? Because I know a lot of, especially no, smaller nonprofits, are turning to that in instead of renting their own space. I think that WeWork is a fantastic option for a certain type of tenant. I have a very high growth tech company that I've represented uh, about 18 months ago that had three people and now has 25. So it would have been irresponsible of me to say, hey, here's what we should do. Let's go get a three-year lease somewhere. Instead, I negotiated a deal with WeWork in a similar way that I negotiate all my deals by looking at all of the co-working providers in the city and speaking to all of them and finding out which one would be the best deal for my client and put them into a space where it ended up saving them money even though there is a an upcharge because of the flexibility that you get there is square footage per square foot increase that you end up paying that kept them in they got a six person office and then they got a 15 person office and then they kept their hardware in another four person office so as they grew the price change and the and the cost of that growth to their balance sheet was immediate it wasn't you know, we're having these pains now so that we don't have them later. It gave them that ability. But now as they're getting bigger, it becomes more of a, we need to get our own office because if we don't, it's going to end up costing us. There is a, there's a big premium to having that flexibility. Right. So once you reach that, that 30 to 40 employee number, you really should go get your own office just from a cost standpoint. Right, there, there's that tipping point. Exactly. Unless, now, I could be wrong about a certain situation. <laughs> if if the most important thing to your business is flexibility, then stay in WeWork forever. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of times that's not the case for most businesses. So they have to go out and find something more cost effective so they can take that money and, and use it instead of on operating expenses to a new product or... Uh, more employees or higher quality employee, whatever it may be. I'm going to change tack a little bit now and talk about how to find a broker. So we were lucky that we found you. You were a great guy. You did great work for us. If you're an executive director or you know on the board of a nonprofit, how do you tell the difference between a good broker and a not great broker? It's incredibly difficult. Um, I would say one of the advantages that that you had was a good friend of mine, Elliot, uh, who introduced us, was a student in your program and had invited me to a bunch of the events that you guys had for fundraising purposes. So having someone that, you know, is vouching for me right there that you trust already um, probably made the decision easier for you. The one thing I will say is that if, if someone ever gives you a call and a lot of the business is based on calling people on the phone to set up a meeting to introduce yourself and is hitting you with the salesman jargon of if they're really coming off as a salesman, if they're saying, I have the business opportunity of a lifetime for you, I'd, I'd probably say steer clear of that guy. But there are a lot of guys that are a lot less obvious than that. They're very good at this. They've made a ton of money over their career and you, you got to just, you have to go with your gut. You have to meet with the person and that's why I say that, you know, if you're really going through the process and you don't have somebody you've worked with in the past, you should probably meet with as many people as you can mm -hmm. because you want to look them in the eye and really figure out whether 
or at least go with your gut, what your instinct says about whether or not they're going to help you or whether they're going to help themselves. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Like how, what are the ways in which a broker may not be serving the interest of their client? I mean, there's unfortunately uh, a lot of ways. We're experts in the market. Typically, the, the tenant that hires us is not. So if we say that something doesn't exist, there's no way of the person really knowing whether we're telling the truth or not. You, you see a lot that incumbents keep their business because of that very simple fact in that they already know the, the quantity. So they did the deal last time. The, the person that's going to make the decision of who to hire this time already has that relationship and knows that last time they had their interest in mind. Because the one thing you do see is if you do a deal that's a bad deal, it's that one deal. When that client, if they're able to overcome that bad deal, now sometimes, unfortunately, a bad deal can put your business at risk. But if they're able to over- overcome that bad deal, you'll very rarely see them go back to that old broker. Right. So that broker made a lot of money on that one because they either upsold them or didn't show them whatever there was in the market that might have been better. They're not, they're not going to get referrals from that guy mm-hmm. because there's going to be a thousand other brokers calling you for the next however long your deal was saying, by the way, did you know that another tenant did a deal in your building uh, two weeks later for $10 less a square foot? Mm-hmm. And you're going to say... What? Right. So really, it's about the broker working as hard as they can on your behalf to get the best deal. Yeah, and it's not just even finding the space. You have to, you have to find someone who's not afraid to leverage. Mm-hmm. You have to find someone who's willing to say, okay, we've got this building and this building. And it's a, it's a small community of brokers. I, I, I've got good relationships with both of the agents of these spaces but I have to still be willing to, it's my fiduciary responsibility to represent my tenant Mm -hmm. the way they need to be represented. So I'm going to go back to both of them with aggressive proposals Mm -hmm. and, you know, based on where the market is, I'm not going to, not going to get a bad deal. But it, it can be hard though, as, as a client, because we also know that the broker is paid as by commission on the rent on how much you pay right so, so if you pay ways, it's right so i'm negotiating it's your the nego- your tenant representative broker is negotiating against his or her personal interest right. when they're advocating for you right which is another reason that you have to you have to you're going out on a limb and you have to go with your gut because yeah. look if you go with your gut and you make the wrong choice You'll find out about it later and you'll be smarter for it the next time you have to choose a broker. Where I, but if you, if, you, if you are wishy-washy or if you're like, oh, no, it, it definitely have to, has to go this way because uh, of X, Y, and Z, then, you know, you can find yourself in a, in a situation where someone's, you know, paying themselves instead of helping you. But you would say that because brokers depend on repeat business and referrals is their bread and butter. It's also in their interest to do the best that they can. That's well, at least that's my, that's my point of view. The way that I view it is if I do a great job for somebody, not only are, are they going to use me the next time as well. And obviously it's a, it's a long-term game. So if I do a seven year deal with somebody, I'm not going to, we're not going to speak again. Well, we'll speak, but we're not going to speak again on a business level for seven years. But if I did a good job, and they're within their industry talking me up and, and another person is like, you know, the last broker I used, I wouldn't, you know, if you're talking me up to someone and which, <laughs> which you have done many times, 
And that, and that executive director is thinking in their head, like, I wouldn't do that for my last broker. Right. They're going to call me because I did a good job for you and it stood the test of time. Well, I can tell you that you are one of the good guys, so, <laughs> I, so and I, thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate that. But, you know, what I told my friend that I last referred to uh, you to was like, he's a really good guy to work with, but he's also, he'll also be a pain in the ass of the landlord's negotiating on your behalf and that that's the person you want in your corner yeah yeah and it's um you have to really enjoy it (laughs) (laughs) i mean the i would say the one thing that i you know there when you think of a stereotypical broker in your head i'm probably not the guy that you think of but at the same token that can be an advantage i think that you know that i look different than everybody else my red hair makes me stand out at these broker parties that i have to go to uh, <laughs> I, I look different than everybody else, it sets me apart, and I kind of embrace that. So let's talk about landlord negotiations. I don't want you to get in trouble with anybody that you have to do business with, but how do you avoid getting screwed in negotiations as a tenant? You just you have to make sure that your broker has the data and is using the data to support their argument. Because at the end of the day, your broker is really your your hired haggler right so he's representing your interests to try to either get more free rent or more work allowance and or or base rent but really those are the basic parts of the deal it's also you know you want to avoid cleaning charges you don't want to have a restoration clause there's there are a ton of different ways that are hidden within a lease for you to lose money and have to and have to pay for that and you know as much as you know real estate gets a bad rep a lot of these landlords want to be good landlords so when you point these things out to them typically they're like oh yeah no i, I get that that that's I, I can't believe we missed that in our in our standard thing and you you you, you just point these things out and t- more often than not if you explain well this is why we think this is fair they'll say oh yeah you're right it's not you know, who wakes up in the morning and just wants to be known as like a bad professional in their field well <laughs> well the way i view it is I just, maybe there are a couple, but not many. There yeah. just can't be. Yeah. Like, you can't wake up and be like, you know what? I really like my reputation as a, as a bad landlord. There's no, there's just, it, that yeah. wouldn't make any sense to me. But, but you know, there, there are things where if it says it in the document, then they don't necessarily have to do that. So, you, again, it really comes down to your broker. You need somebody who knows all those, those little pieces and can make sure that you're covered on all of them. One thing that I hear a lot of, I sort of equated to, trying to find a unicorn is a lot of nonprofits or nonprofit boards will say, oh, well, why can't we try to just get free space or donated space? Is that a thing? Does <laughs> it's, that exist? So it's not. It's not a thing. Um, <laughs> the, the first thing is free space, even if it's free for you, isn't free for whoever's giving it to you. It's not like they, they just have it there and can, there's insurance involved. There's a bunch of other costs that come into play. Nothing's... For lack of a better phrase, this is America. Nothing is free. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's there's a ton of costs that come along there, and and you know when when it comes down to it, all right. Let's say, let's say you you find this needle in a haystack. Someone is willing to take on the cost of giving you this free space. How do you think your service is going to be mm-hmm. in that space? If something goes wrong. There's a leak. You know, there's some mold. I didn't, you're not paying for it, so why are you complaining about the hazardous mold in your? It's like there's right. there's a yeah, you could try to find it, but the likelihood of finding quality free space is 
I mean, even less than finding free space at all, which is slight to begin with. Right. So it's something that you just you have to weigh, and the likelihood of again, the likelihood of finding free space number one is small, and finding free space that you want to be in and and you will facilitate you doing good work for whatever it is you're trying to do is it's even less. Last question for you. I've been reading recently about the trend away from open office space. Is that a, is that something that you've been seeing amongst your tenants? The only people that when they ask me, I recommend open office space to are people that do very focused work. So if you're doing the type of work where you know, the guys come in, you know, let's say it's a financial firm a quant trader. So they've got a an algorithm and they're really computer scientists that are doing this work and they're just putting their headphones on looking at their screen and doing if you're doing people work I know think about it you're in an open room with everyone else talking to whoever they need to talk to so yeah it saves space it definitely it can lower your cost because you don't need the extra space for whether it be cubes or more offices which are space wasters so you can you know put bench seating in really pack people in but if they're not doing focused work where they're just you know, looking straight ahead and they're on the phone or if they need, you know, if someone needs to come up to their desk and talk to them about something, but they don't sit in their immediate area, it's distracting for everyone else. So there's that, I'd say, you know, the reason people went to it in the first place is because it's, it's cost efficient, no matter how much people wanted to say it's because millennials like it. It's, it's more cost efficient. And I think people are going away from it because they're realizing that quality of work went down. In the nonprofit world, I think we we know that retention is always top of mind because it tends to be a pretty high turnover yeah. uh, area. And so to what extent is physical space and physical office space a factor that you consider when you talk to nonprofits? Because on the one hand, I think nonprofits think, okay, cheapest is best. But on the other hand, if I could provide a beautiful space to work in that will actually inspire people to stick around longer, like it might be worth the cost. Well, right. So cheapest is best, right? That's what we're ingrained to think right. that, that the cheapest thing is the best because if I do the cheapest thing, then I'll have more money for the programs, right? right? But at the same token, you can have less money for the programs and be in bad space if you have to spend all of that capital retraining somebody every six months. So at the end of the day, if you're going to have a full turnover every year, what's better? Have a better office space that make people happier and like it was conducive, have healthy relationships, or is it better to say, ah, eh, whatever with the office space and I'll retrain people. Mm. So it's something that, you know, you have to, it's, I, I would say that that's kind of like a management decision. Mm. The broker can help you and we have, you know, workplace strategists um, that can talk you through things like this to, to kind of weigh it for you. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, if you have a great team and you really don't want to lose anybody, an office space can go a long way. Can go along if you're th think about it this way if at a, at a at a more relatable for every person whether you're you know the executive director or a, a manager within a profit if you're in a terrible apartment you never want to be there right mm -hmm. you're going to try to move out of that apartment as quickly as possible mm -hmm. it doesn't matter whether it's so cheap <laughs> you you just don't want to be there yeah so even if even if it's in the best neighborhood ever and you're doing cool things all day in that apartment, you're still in that apartment. And at the end of the day, there's something to be said for, you know, the way your environment interacts with your, your mind. I would be happy to come back on. This was really fun. I thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you for being here. And you know what? If you have any questions for Andrew, feel free to put it in the comments and we'll have him on for another episode. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you.